All right, let's get started this morning by praying together Psalm 98, which is on page 820. Psalm 98 is the psalm that inspired Isaac Watts to write Joy to the World, the Lord has Come, um, which is a, an Advent hymn um, that we'll be singing this morning. Um, it all has to do with the Lord coming to us, um, not only the um, past coming of our Lord and the incarnation of Jesus, but um, his second coming, his promise to come again. And... Um, Let's pray it together. Psalm 98 on page 820 in your hymnals. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. And revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. With the trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, King Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Father in heaven, this morning we give you thanks um, for your son. Um, We thank you, Father, that um, he is not only the one who has come, but the one who will come again. And we pray this morning, indeed, um, that our Lord Jesus would come soon, that he would judge the world in righteousness and equity, Father. And we pray um, for your spirit um, to bring about that day soon. And we pray for the conversion of the nations, Father. We pray for the building up of your kingdom even for the coming of our Lord. And we ask this morning, Father, um, as we wait for that coming, um, that you'll be with us by your spirit as we gather this Lord's Day for worship um, in a little bit, that your spirit would be present with us, that you would enliven um, our worship, Father, that you would indeed again renew your covenant with your people um, this Lord's Day. And we ask now during this time of Sunday school and preparation for worship that your spirit be with us as well, that you would guide us and give us wisdom as we discuss um, the things before us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Hopefully you have received a handout. Um, We are going to be talking today about the Westminster um, Confession of Faith, and um, I would love to give you a copy of the Westminster Confession, um, if that's something that, um, particularly if you don't have. Um, um, Can I get some help, Jeremy or Matt? Um, it would be really great as you go through this class to have your own personal um, copy. If, if you've got one at home and you definitely don't think you need one, that's fine, but um, here you go, Matt. Um, but take one um, otherwise. The edition that I'm giving you is one that I like because it's uh, just the, the typeset is clear and readable. Um, it's, it's laid out well. Um, this is the version so to speak, in terms of the printing version that I use um, you know, on a daily basis, basically, as I refer to the confession or catechisms um, in my ministry. Um, and I'd encourage you to, you know, to, to use it. Feel free to you know, take notes in it, uh, mark it up as you, um, as you please as we go through it over the next few months. Um, so just so you can see how this is, book is laid out, so this is titled The Westminster Standards, and that's the phrase that's used to refer to um, not only the Westminster Confession of Faith, but also the shorter and larger catechisms that go along with it, and all of those documents are included in this book. Um, the, um, if you go to the page of contents, just on the basically the first inside page there, um, you can see um, how it's laid out. Um, first the confession, and then the larger catechism, um, which um, the questions for the larger, there, there are more questions for the larger catechism. Um, let's see, there are 196 questions in the larger catechism, and the answers tend to be longer, um, sometimes a great deal longer um, than the shorter catechism. The shorter catechism is at the back, starting on page 71. 
the shorter catechism only has just a little over 100, 107 questions. Um, and so the, the, my understanding, at least what has been passed down to me, is that the larger catechism was originally developed um, largely for ministers um, in their um, training um, for the ministry um, and for more advanced um, you know, adults as they sought to understand the theology of the standards. And the shorter catechism was intended um, largely for children. And actually, we do use the shorter catechism in our um, training of our covenant kids here in Sunday school. Um, and, and the shorter catechism questions tend to be pretty concise and, and brief. And, and generally, um, you know, any of us um, would have no problem memorizing um, the questions and answers in the shorter catechism. Um, the longer catechism is, is or larger catechism is, um, that'd be more challenging. Uh, some of those questions are quite extensive. Um, but I would say the larger catechism and my experience with this document over the years of my ministry is an invaluable tool um, where the writers of the standards um, go into a great more detail um, about different aspects of, of you know, the things that are discussed in the confession. And so that's something to keep in mind that the larger catechism is often a place where you can find more information, um, more ex exposition of a particular theological topic. And, um, and so I would commend it to you um, as a resource. Um, but we're going to be focusing our attention on the Westminster Confession of Faith in the coming months. Um, and again, you can see that in the table of contents there. Um, it's the first you know, thing that's in this document. Um, beginning on page three, and you can see on that table of contents the um, 33 chapters that are covered in the Confession of Faith, um, which is a, just a helpful guide to have, um, just as a resource. To you know, this is one of the I think benefits of the um, Confession is how well it's laid out and how comprehensive it is. It doesn't cover everything, of course, in the Christian life, but it covers, um, I would say, most of the central things at least. Um, so you have topics like of the Holy Scripture, of God and the Holy Trinity, of God's eternal decree, creation, providence, the fall of man, sin, um, God's covenant with man, Christ the mediator, and then you have a chapter on free will, effectual calling, um, and then you begin to see the order salutis, beginning with effectual calling, effectual calling, justification, adoption. Um, order salutis is a Latin phrase that just refers to the order of salvation, um, the way in which God saves um, uh, men, um, the, the way in which that happens, the different parts of that. So effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification, saving faith, repentance of good works, perseverance of the saints, etc., etc., and then into more specific topics, um, ethical topics, really, um, as you think about the law of God, Christian liberty, religious worship, the Sabbath day, oaths and vows, the civil magistrate, marriage and divorce. And in the last section, you have um, ecclesiology, um, what the, we believe regarding the church. So a, a chapter 25 on the church and then the communion of saints, the fellowship that the saints share in the church by the spirit. Um, then a chapter on the sacraments generally, then on the two sacraments, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and then some other um, ecclesiastical topics, church censures, which is essentially church discipline is what's being referred to there. And then the role of synods and councils of the church, and then last things, the last two chapters, right? The state of men after death, the resurrection of the dead, and the last judgment. So you, you kind of see uh, you know, pretty obvious kind of flow um, to the topics there and the way that it's laid out, um, beginning with God and his, um, well, beginning with scripture, but then moving into the, who God is, the Trinity, his decree, creation, all of those things, and then into man, um, his, how God saves man, then into some ethical um, um, topics and then into the ecclesiology of the church and then last things at the end. So just helpful to see that I think laid out for you there. Um, and uh, you know if you're not familiar with the confession you can just you know flip through it. Many of the chapters are pretty brief really um, just you know maybe five or six paragraphs. Um, so that's it's not a long document in terms of um, the total world total word count um, but there is you know it's very dense in some ways um, in terms of how much is packed into those words and those paragraphs. And, and um, I think we'll see that as we move through it. Um, I intend today mainly to talk about the historical context of the confession, um, which I think is really helpful as we try to understand it in our, in our modern context. Um, but just, I'd be curious just 
what y'all's impressions are at this point of the Westminster Confession. I'm sure there's a range here. Um, anybody want to share? Anybody have a deep familiarity with the Confession? Anybody, you know, um, this is like your first time you've ever cracked it. I'm looking up. Um, any? Give me some feedback. What What are some thoughts that you guys have previously about the Confession? What are impressions that you have? Yes, sir. <laughs> comes that close to being divinely inspired billy says <laughs> uh, yeah well what's interesting of course and i'm sure you know this is that the the writer of the writers of the confession make it very clear early on that um that what they're writing is not divinely inspired and they differentiate it from scripture i i am sympathetic to that position i think it is a in terms of a confession of faith i think it is um the height of what the church has produced thus far um, in its life. It doesn't mean that we can't do better. And um, at this point, the confession is, you know, over 300 years old, and so almost 400 years old. And so perhaps we should we should think about that in terms of the writing of new confessions and creeds of the church. Yeah. Anybody else? Anybody else? Um, anybody? Yeah. Want to share? No, I think that's I think that's right, James. I think yeah. So James is saying that there's a lot of balance and even nuance within the document, um, that it's willing to maintain tension um, in regards to things that the scriptures don't give us all the answers for. It's willing to say that at times, and, um, and I think that's right. And I think we're going to look at this today. But one of the fascinating things about this confession is it's one of the few Protestant confessions. Um, that were produced by a group of people um, working together rather than largely just one person. Um, and there are some particular ways in which more people were involved in this confession for a longer period of time um, than um, any other Protestant confession that's ever been written. Um, you know, there were about 100 men involved in the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith over a period. I mean, the, the Westminster Assembly met for nine or ten years as a whole, um, and, and about three of those years were given over to writing the Confession of Faith. So that's, I think that's part of the reason for that is that you had lots of, you know, at times, I mean, men who agreed fundamentally on things of the faith but had different perspectives on how it should be articulated or expressed, and they, they worked together over a long period of time to articulate it in just these words. And in many ways, the Confession leaves room for different perspectives on matters that are not essential. Um, which is which is the deliberate decision. And I, I think that's true, too. I think the confession often has this um, uh, reputation, maybe, or people have an impression that it's just very esoteric and it's very um, sort of dry. But I would I would really challenge that. In my, in my view, the confession, and particularly the larger catechism as well, um, can be very pastoral, um, can speak very clearly about... Um, issues of the heart and of um, yeah of, of theological nuance and I think it's a it's a wonderful document in that sense um, I, I think it's far warmer in tone um, than some people would say it, it is different some people times people compare the Westminster Confession to the Heidelberg Catechism which is in, written um, in the first person and um, those kinds of things and, and and I think that affects how people um, read it um, the other thing that's interesting about the confession, you know, many of the, and we'll see this in a minute too as we walk through other confessions of faith or, or catechisms of the Reformation period, many of those um, were written in other languages than English, or almost all of them were written in other languages than English, which means that they're being perpetually translated um, into contemporary English. Um, like the Heidelberg, for example, is written in German. And so it's, you know, unless you're a, a German-speaking church, you're, per, you're perpetually translating that into the language of the vernacular. Whereas for us, um, the confession was written in English, and so which is a wonderful benefit. We don't have to read it in translation. We can read it in the original language. Um, but 
the language is, is antiquated to some extent. It's archaic, right, um, because of the way in which the English language itself has developed in 300 years. And so there, there are pros and cons to that, I guess. Um, yeah, any other impressions or thoughts about the confession? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I should, I should see if I can pull together a list and see some of the names that we could pick off. Um, certainly there'll be some names that we would recognize. Yeah, the, the confession was written, so the basic historical context of the confession um, is it, it happened in a time of essentially civil war um, in, in England. Um, uh, James, um, you recall the sort of the way in which the monarchy impacted the religious expression of the English people. Um, in a very direct way, right? Henry VIII leaves um, the Roman Catholic Church, establishes the Church of England. Um, he has a son, Edward VI, who's, and, and Henry's commitment to Protestantism has been debated, right, um, through the centuries. Some people think he was more Protestant. Some people think he was just a pragmatist, basically, and was seeking to, you know, do the things politically he wanted to do, and the church became a tool. I, I would say I think there is evidence that Henry VIII was, um, uh, genuinely had some Protestant, genuine Protestant convictions. Um, but clearly his son, Edward, um, after Henry dies, is a, is a, you know, I mean, he, he was young. He was, I think, nine when he became king. Only lived for seven years. But he does seem to have been um, Protestant as a child and influenced by Protestants. Um, so the English church becomes more um, self-consciously Protestant during Edward's reign. The Book of Common Prayer, um, a new edition is published, Cramner. Um, has a great deal of influence. Then Edward dies of natural causes. Mary, um, the king's first daughter um, by his first wife, um, becomes queen. Um, she's very Roman Catholic and initiates a great deal of persecution against um, the Protestant church. Um, Thomas Cramner, the writer of the confession, is, is martyred during that time. Um, other leading Protestants are martyred under Mary's rule. Um, Mary dies, the Lord is kind, and brings her life to an end. Um, um, pretty, you know, I think she reigns for maybe eight or nine years. And then Elizabeth, of course, becomes queen. And Elizabeth is far more self-consciously Protestant um, and during that time. And so there is a, a great deal of reformation that happens. And Elizabeth reigns for about 40 years. Um, so Protestantism really begins to, to take root in England in a new way. Um, then after her death, there's no heir, and so James I comes down from Scotland and becomes, um, Scotland and England are different realms at this point, and he becomes king of both England and Scotland, um, and that's when the King James Bible, right, um, we're familiar with that phrase, um, he is the one who um, establishes the translation of the Bible um, into English, and that, you know, had been done before by Wycliffe and others and Tyndall, but in a particular way, he does it there. Um, and, and, of course, that becomes a hugely influential document in Bible translation and even the English language there, the early 1600s. Um, James, however, is less committed to Protestantism than some of his predecessors, particularly Elizabeth. Um, he dies. His son, James II, becomes king. Um, and he is not at all committed to Protestantism. Um, he doesn't persecute Protestants in the way that his um, predecessor, Mary, did. Um, but he has very... Um, we could call them Anglo-Catholic tendencies um, and, and wants to, to move the church in that direction. Um, there's an Archbishop, William Laud, um, who becomes very prominent and really begins to persecute um, Puritans and others who don't want to um, have the kind of theological commitments that he does. And eventually this leads to civil war. Um, James II attempts to rule the country without Parliament being a part of that. Um, there's about 12 years where it's called the personal rule, where he basically cancels parliament and says we're not going to have, because parliament at that time was very Protestant, had become very Protestant, dominated by Protestants. Um, and so, yes, did you? Oh, I'm sorry. There you go. Billy's helping me out. James II was king, though, during this time, right? In that era. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you, thank you, Billy. <laughs> that's great. 
So Charles is king. Um, so there is a, um, um, but all the things I was saying earlier in terms of the movement towards the Roman Catholic Church were taking place. Um, and then, so yeah, there's this period of called personal rule where he basically cancels parliament. Um, and then um, um, there begins to be civil war. This is when Oliver Cromwell um, becomes really prominent um, and is a really successful general in the field for England. He fights against the king. There's, there's civil war, essentially religious civil war, um, between people who are loyal to the king, who tend to be more Roman Catholic in their affections, and then the more Protestant people who are, who are um, con connected to parliament. Um, and so it's during this time that when parliament reinstitutes itself, um, the king has fled London at this point, and, um, and there's, you know, the, the Scottish um, people are coming down, and, and Scotland's a complicated place at this time too, because the Scottish people in general are more, uh, are very Protestant, very reformed because of the influence of John Knox. Um, so they essentially join forces with parliament against the British king. Um, and, and during this time, Parliament um, has a long session in which they call the Westminster Assembly. And so that's the context the assembly is built in. Um, it's to articulate a Protestant confession for the Church of England, which is interesting because it's not, you know, today used by the Church of England. Um, it's become a largely a Presbyterian document, um, but in its, in its creation, it was um, a creation of the Church of England. And so the, the commissioners that come um, are, it's fascinating the way they, that Parliament does it. They call, um, I think it's two um, commissioners from each county in England. Um, and so there's this widespread sort of, you know, it's, it's meant to be a, a largely, um, it's meant to really reflect England as it was at that time in terms of its theological convictions. Um, and, and so there were, you know, there are, there are, what we would call Anglicans, who are part of the writing of this document. There are what we would call Puritans. Um, uh, there, are what we were, there, were, there was a small contingent of what we would call Congregationalists, um, who are not, they're not Baptist in terms of, you know, they believe in pedo-baptism, baptizing children, um, but they are not committed to church government beyond the local church. Um, they think churches should be independent, congregations should be independent. And then there are a few Scottish commissioners that come down who are not voting commissioners, but are part of the discussions. And they are very Presbyterian, you know, very um, committed to Presbyterianism as it had been reflected in Scotland in that time. So it's, it's, a, it's a broad group that really is reflective of, um, of England at that time. And, and all of the voting commissioners are English. It's important to say that. Um, so it's not an international um, council of the church. It's a, it's a national one in that way. Does that help at all? In terms of giving some context? Yeah. Yep. All right, let's, let's, let me move through here real quick. Some of this, um, I just want to give you all a picture of some of the um, details um, of uh, what's going on here in terms of especially how this confession lines up with other um, major confessions of Reformation. So one of the things to notice or know about the Westminster Confession is that it's the last of the great confessions um, of the Reformation, um, really the last confession at all um, of that Reformation period. Um, some of the major confessions of the Reformation, I've written them out there for you. The Scots Confession is written basically by John Knox after he comes um, back to Scotland from Geneva where he studies with John Calvin. It's written in English. It's, it's, it's written at the request of the Scottish Parliament. It's for Scotland. Um, that's the Scots Confession is a really fascinating document, um, which I actually appreciate a lot. Um, the Belgic Confession, you may have heard of that. Um, that word Belgic, it, it's similar to the word that now is Belgium, right? The lower countries, um, that nation that is Belgium now. Um, it, it comes out of that part of the world. Um, it's written in French um, um, by I don't know how to say his name, Guido de Bray, um, and it's largely used in the, the Netherlands area, um, um, but it's written in French originally, the Belgic Confession, 1561. 1562, you have the second Helvetic Confession that's written by Heinrich Bullinger, who is the, um, the man who follows in Zwingli, um, after Zwing Zwingli is the Swiss reformer, um, and so Bullinger is his successor. He writes it in Latin. It's largely used in Switzerland. You kind of a sense of some of the continental flavor of the Reformation at this time. Remember 1517 is when Luther nails the documents to the, the wall. 
um, in Wittenberg. So all of these things are developing out of that about 40 years later or so. Um, the Heidelberg Catechism there um, is written again largely by one man, um, Yersinius, um, in German. It's largely used in the Dutch church. It was intended for the German church, but never um, was able to have a deep influence there. The German church largely remained Lutheran um, through the influence of Luther, but the Heidelberg is certainly, it's not a Lutheran document, it's a reform document in terms of its, um, its expression. Uh, the 39 articles are written in England in around 1571. They're, they're, they're written over a period of time, but that's when the, they're published first as the 39 articles. And they're really written as a differentiation of what's going on in England um, from the Church of Rome. Um, that's another fascinating Reformation document. And, and in some ways, the Westminster Confession of Faith, the, the document it's most related to is the 39 articles. Um, they were originally um, charged to do a revision of the 39 articles. Um, that lasted for about a year, and then they basically said, no, let's just start over, essentially, and do something new. Um, the Canons of Dort happen in 1619, and this is really the first time that you see a council of the church take place in the Reformation period that is like the Westminster Assembly in any way. The Canons of Dort are, are written um, specifically against Arminianism, um, which is a, a a false teaching, in my view at least, and in the view of the Canons of Dort that grew up during this time, which had a kind of radical commitment to free will. Um, and, um, and so the Canons of Dort are written in response to um, that false teaching. Um, that actually is where um, the, the acronym TULIP that we use sometimes to talk about Calvinism comes out of, the Calvin, comes out of not Calvin's writings, but out of the Canons of Dort. Um, doctrines like total depravity and those kinds of things in the way that they're articulated. Um, and that's more of an international um, council. There is, um, but it's, it's written to, in response to a specific theological problem, um, the debate about um, you know, how, how election works and God's sovereignty in that. Um, so it's not a, as comprehensive a document as the Westminster Confession of Faith, if that makes sense. Um, and then, and, but it is an international council. Actually, there are English, um, there's an English contingent at the Council of Dort. Um, and that, but it also, can, the canon of, canons of Dort only last, it's less than a year that they meet. Um, so it, is, it doesn't last anywhere near as long as the Westminster Assembly, Westminster Assembly does. So the assembly is called in 1643 in that context of civil war. Um, and it lasts for about 10 years. Um, and it, it publishes the Confession of Faith first in 1647. Um, then Parliament asks them to add proof texts. Um, and so they do that. And then they are asked to produce both a larger and shorter catechism. So they do that. Um, so those are you know, more tasks that come after the Confession of Faith. Um, and then during this whole time, the assembly is not only writing these documents, they're also um, um, uh, ordaining ministers um, examining ministers for ordination, they functionally become the government of the Church of England during this time. Um, they are disciplining um, false ministers um, for moral or theological issues. Um, so they're, it's basically a church court that's just in session in London for a decade, basically. Which is a fascinating thing to think that the men who are a part of this, you know, gave a decade of their life um, to this work um, that, that the confession comes out of. It was it was their life work in many ways. Um, it was the most substantial thing that they would do. And that's, that's all part of um, the context, I think. So I, I've summarized here um, this, these couple of paragraphs that I think give us a little bit of a picture um, of what this was like. So Greg Salazar is a modern historian, um, church historian, who, who has a little article that summarizes some of the background of the Westminster Assembly and Confession. And so he, he describes it this way. He says, on June 12, 1643, Parliament released a summoning ordinance to gather together an assembly of learned and godly divines for the settling of the government and the liturgy of the Church of England. Um, the total number of invited participants was 120, although the average attendance of most sessions of the assembly was between 70 and 80 divines, as the members are called. And that word divines um, is the word that's typically used to refer to um, the writers of the standards. Um, 
and it, it's an archaic term today. It would be considered an archaic term. At the time, it just meant minister. Um, it just meant someone who was um, speaking of divine things, not that they, the word divine wasn't used the way that we use it today to refer directly to God. Um, and so, so that's so 80, 70 to 80 ministers um, or divines as the members were called. So all the men there were pastors um, in the ministry. The assembly eventually convened on July 1st, 1643. So it took about three weeks to gather, which was pretty impressive. Um, to redefine and refine orthodoxy in England after a tumultuous decade of Laudian reform. Laud is the Archbishop of Canterbury that tried to press all of the kind of Anglo-Catholic, Roman Catholic um, movement. You know, he was the one leading that. So this was a response to Laud um, and his innovations. Um, this body was the intellectual engine behind Parliament and the Puritan Revolution. That refers to the Oliver Cromwell. Um, who essentially becomes the Lord Protector of England, the de facto king for a period of time, um, and became one of the most formidable institutions in Britain during this time. So that's important to know. Like this wasn't just like a, you know, you know, today if a hundred Presbyterians got together for ten years and um, worked on a theological document, you know, that wouldn't the New York Times wouldn't be reporting on that, really, right? They wouldn't really care. Um, but at this time, um, this was like the main, one of the main things happening in Britain was the meeting of the Westminster Assembly and the work that they were doing. It was, you know, there was a, a, it was deeply political because it was so connected to what was happening in the nation. It wasn't just a religious thing happening over here. It was everybody was invested in what the work these men were doing, um, which is an interesting thing to think about. Um, the assembly met extensively over a decade of turmoil. Um, so battles are happening out in the field, and these men are all there at Westminster Abbey in England, in London. Um, they met about 1,300 times from 1643 to 1652, and then another year on a weekly basis. The divines, so this is a little picture of the schedule they followed. The divines gathered Monday through Friday, beginning their days at 6 a.m. with a lecture and prayer, followed by a sermon from a probationary minister, so a minister who was going to be examined by them for ordination, which, you know, um, just kind of a fascinating thing to think about, being examined by the Westminster Assembly um, to be ordained. Um, and then they held committee meetings. So they, they did a lot of their work. Initial work was always done in committee. So a committee would be assigned a, a specific chapter of the confession. Um, so a smaller group of men, they would debate that and work on that, et cetera, et cetera. Then it would come to the whole floor um, for the whole body um, for discussion and debate. The plenary session, so that's when the, the assembly's meeting as a whole, began at 9 a.m. and consisted of debating the day's proposition until lunch. Um, so whatever part of the confession they were working on that day, whatever sentences or phrases, um, usually breaking between 9 and 2 p.m. after lunch, or further committee meetings until 5 p.m. or later. So you have this back and forth of men are meeting in smaller committees to debate, you know, drafts essentially of the confession, and they're meeting as a whole um, to debate the, the finalized versions. While the divine's initial aim was to reform the 39 articles, eventually they pursued a full-scale reformation of English worship doctrine and church government. And that was because that was the instruction that they received from Parliament. And actually, there are some members who were members of Parliament themselves and also part of the assembly. Um, there are many practical matters involved in the divines' attendance at the assembly, including many divines relocating their families to London to participate. Um, so this, you know, deeply impacted their lives. Basically, they moved to London for a decade from whatever part of England they uh, originated from. Now this explains why only half of those invited were present at the opening ceremony. Members were paid four shillings per day for their labors. I have no idea what that is equivalent of in today's dollars. Um, though in the end, members only received half of the final remuneration that was due to them. Understanding the con this context allows us to appreciate the literal blood, sweat, and tears that went into crafting these principled documents. This reveals that far from being armchair theologians, these men understood that the matters they were considering were truly matters of life and death. They pursued their ministry in the midst of a gruesome civil war, 
that divided the country and resulted in the execution of the king. And the king was executed um, by parliament during this time, um, the only king um, in British history that was executed. As a result of these labors, they produced not only the Westminster Confession of Faith and larger and shorter catechisms, but also the Directory of Worship, a Psalter, other shorter papers. They also examined more than 2,000 preachers and some heretics. Any thoughts or questions about that? We've got some other things here to, to say. But Does that give you a little picture of what's happening here? The version we have here, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, this, yeah. Yeah, this version that we have, the version that's used by the American Presbyterian Church, which is largely, I mean, confession is used in other parts of the world, but it's um, um, most primarily, I would say, used in the United States, um, has been modified largely around um, questions of the relation between the, the the state and the church, um, and also some of the language about the Pope being the Antichrist. So those are two of the primary changes that have happened um, in the this version of the confession versus the original version. So I would say they're relatively minor ad- amendments that have been made. And theoretically, the, the confession that we use in our denomination could be amended at any time. Um, that's within our polity is that we while we use the confession in one of our documents, our standards for um, our, our church, it can be changed. And so there's a process to do that. Um, so, you know, next year there could be a mo- motion that's been made to amend the, the, the confession. So it, it's meant to be a living document in that sense. Yeah. Yes, James. I, I don't know that, yeah, I don't think it was that they wanted to um, um, fundamentally change things in the 39 Articles that they thought were out of line, but more, the 39 Articles, you probably have read them, um, they're very brief, right? They often are a sentence or two um, for an article. And so I think largely it was to, to make them more robust rather than to, you know, alter them in some fundamental way. Yeah, the Third Nine Articles is a, a good Protestant confession, I would say. Yeah. Um, and you know, today is still theoretically at least held by the Church of England. I don't, I don't know that that's works itself out um, consistently um, in the way that it should. But um, all right, let me. Um, I think one of the things to think about the Westminster Assembly. I'm going to read this quote from John Murray. John Murray is a a church theologian of the 20th century taught at uh, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, he says, and this is, I think, important to think about the Westminster Assembly, that they, they saw themselves as the heirs of a tradition, that they, weren't, they didn't see themselves as innovators or people who were trying to recreate the wheel or do something from scratch. Um, they saw themselves as building on um, previous councils of the church, um, even the ecumenical councils um, that took place in the early part of the church's life, and then certainly on the confessions and creeds that had been written during the Protestant period. Um, and in many ways, this is one of the strengths of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that it comes last chronologically in terms of the, the creeds of the Reformation church. Um, so, so all of the other documents are available to them, and they're, they're familiar you know, with the Heidelberg Catechism, with the Canons of Dort, with the Second Helvetic Confession, with all these other documents, the Scots Confession. Um, and so I think that's, that's a big part of the strength of the Westminster Confession. Um, so Murray says, The Westminster Assembly is on your back page. Did not abstract itself from the history of the church, but willingly and gratefully recognized itself as the debtor to all the wisdom and light that God and his providence had caused to be deposited in the expositions and formulations of the past. More particularly, the Westminster divines were the heirs of all the other evangelical creeds of the Reformation period. 
So that list that I gave you here. And it's important to say, um, I mean, I've only listed here on the front page of your handout, you know, the, in my judgment, at least, the most important seven or eight confessions and creeds that have been written during the Reformation period. But there's another 40 or so that I haven't listed here. Uh, that, that period, um, you know, between like 1540 and, you know, the early 1600s, those 50 years or so, 60 years, are just incredibly rich in terms of ar theological articulations that are being made by the church. Um, and part of that's because of the way the Reformation's happening. It's happening in, in different countries, and those countries have different languages, and so they're wanting to, to articulate their, their theological convictions in the vernacular, right? The Reformation, one of the big emphases is um, not just using Latin as the language of the church, but using the language of the common people. So there, I mean, there are just dozens and dozens of creeds and confessions being written during this period um, by all, all kinds of Protestants, um, which is a beautiful thing. Um, the Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries was peculiarly, peculiarly prolific in the production of confessions of faith. It was an age of ardent and faith, and the framing of creeds or confessions was the natural result. Um, not only was the, were those early reformers responding to um, the Roman church, um, but they were also increasingly responding to one another and differences that they had around the sacraments or around different um, theological issues. It is noteworthy, however, that the Westminster Confession and Catechisms are the last in the series of the Great Reformation Creeds. This fact of chronology is itself of great significance. The rich repertory of Protestant confessional statements covering more than a hundred years lay open before them. It was their happy lot to compare, to sift, to select, and to evaluate in the full light of more than a century of faithful and devoted labor on the part of others. But perhaps, so, so basically Murray's saying this idea of chronology is really important when we come to the Westminster Confession, that they had those other documents um, to read and to use um, as sources. Um, but then he goes on to say that the Westminster Confession is also unique in this way. It, it, had, it was a larger assembly that met for a much longer time than any other Reformation creed, and that's absolutely the case. Which, so those are two things you really think about, both the chronology of the Westminster Confession, but also in terms of when it's written, but how it's written, that it's written by so many men, so many learned men um, who were theological um, geniuses in many ways, and they wrote it collectively together. It wasn't anyone's personal confession over a long period of time. Um, perhaps of even greater significance is the fact that no other Protestant of ref or Reformed confession um, had, been, had brought to bear upon its composition such a combination of devotion, care, and erudition, this means education or intelligence, as was exhibited in the work of the Westminster Assembly. The Westminster Confession and Catechisms are therefore the mature fruit of the whole development of creed formation throughout 15 centuries of Christian history, and in particular, they are the crown of the greatest age of confessional exposition, the Protestant Reformation. No other similar documents have concentrated in them and formulated with such a precision so much of the truth embodied in the Christian revelation. Um, so I think that's something just to think about and be aware of as you come to the document, um, as you're reading it just all of this history, all of the story um, that led to its production. Any comments or questions about that? I'm going to read to you. This is this last parrot section is written by a, uh, Robert Bailey, who's one of the participants in the assembly, and I think is an interesting perspective. But any questions about anything I've said in terms of the formation of this document and why it's different, how it's different from other Reformation creeds or catechisms or confessions? Thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. so I'll try to answer that quickly. Um, so I would not say that, I may have misspoke earlier, I wouldn't, I wouldn't differentiate Lutheranism 
from the Reformation theology, but I would differentiate it, and usually it's the terms are different in terms of Reformed theology versus Lutheran theology, and Lutherans would differentiate themselves today. They would say, we're not Reformed, we're Lutheran. Does that make sense? But both parties would say, we're part of the Protestant Reformation, and certainly Lutherans are a fundamental part of the Protestant Reformation. Um, some of the main differences between Lutheranism and uh, Reformed theology today have to do with um, the sacraments, um, sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and also in some ways baptism, although that's not as significant. Um, for example, the LCMS, which is the main conservative Lutheran denomination today um, in the United States, um, very sadly, from my perspective, would not allow you or me to take communion in their church um, because of the ways that they see their sacramental theology is different from ours in terms of what happens in the Lord's Supper. And so um, there are LCMS congregations that are exceptions to this, um, where they will not do what they should do in terms of what their stated theology says or their stated church government says. Um, but, but technically, according to the LCMS, you cannot take communion at an LCMS church unless you are a part of that denomination, unless you agree precisely with them on their articulation of the Lord's Supper. I would say... Honestly, that I don't. I think the the view that we have of Calvin's view of spiritual presence and Lutheran's view of what's called consubstantiation are not that far apart from one another. A lot of it's the way that it's been articulated. Um, and actually, Luther and Calvin almost were able to sort of come to an agreement um, during um, the Reformation period, and would have been, in my view, much more profitable if they had. Um, um, so that would be one difference. Another difference would be the, the law-gospel distinction that's really present in Lutheran circles where they're often in Lutheran preaching or theology, there's a very strong antithesis, so opposition between law and gospel. So a lot of biblical interpretation has to do with figuring out what parts of the scripture are law and therefore are there so that you know that you're a sinner, and then what parts are gospel, so are given to you to know that God loves you in Christ and forgives your sins. Um, and Certainly, I would say that there, you know, we could talk about those things in, in some way when we come to the scriptures. Um, but reformed, the reformed branch of the church would have a much higher view of the law as, as a good thing that is given to us for far more than just disclosing our sin. It's actually given to us to instruct us in righteousness um, as a moral guide. Um, and so it has a really fundamental role to play in sanctification. Lutherans would say sanctification, that is becoming more holy in your life, is largely just believing justification more deeply rather than following the law uh, more closely. Um, so that would be a distinction. I mean, there are other distinctions too. Um, I mean, part of it is just cultural and, and linguistic. You know, the, the Lutheran church um, came out of Germany and was, you know, all the theology is being done in German and, and you know, the Reformation um, originally is being done in French um, with Calvin, um, um, but then increasingly becomes in, you know, at least Presbyterianism today becomes an English-speaking um, thing, and then it also becomes very prominent in, du in the Dutch-speaking world um, during the Reformation period um, as well. So, so some of the, the distinctions are cultural, linguistic, too, as much as anything else. But we would, I mean, we would agree with Lutherans on 95% of theology. I went to a Lutheran pastor's conference, a bunch of LCMS guys. I was the only Reformed person there, um, or only non-Lutheran there. Um, last May was great, and we had a lot of good fellowship and discussions. And I deeply appreciate a lot of Lutheran liturgy and um, theology and preaching. And so I don't know if that helps. But yeah. All right, let me, let me just read this last paragraph. We'll close with this. So. This is written by Robert Bailey, who was a Scottish commissioner, who was part of the assembly, not a voting commissioner, but was present um, for the assembly. Um, so he wrote this in 1643, and you'll see that in some of the, um, the language of the time. They've, they've left it in its kind of original um, English that he wrote it in. It gives you a picture, though, of what it was like. He says, on Monday morning, we sent to both houses of parliament for a warrant for our sitting in the assembly. This is the very beginning of the assembly. When we were brought in, Dr. Twiss, he was the moderator of the Westminster Assembly, had a long harangue, I don't know what that is, a speech, I guess, for our welcome. And after so long and hazardous a journey, voyage by sea, 
and land in so unseasonable time of the year. When he had ended, we sat down in these places, which we have since kept, which I think is funny, right? Um, they, the Westminster Assembly also had you know, their particular chairs um, or places in the assembly where they sat day after day. Um, the like of that assembly I never see, and as we hear say, the like was never in England, nor anywhere is shortly likely to be. So he means the, the kind of men that were there were part of it, the kind of voices that were present. We meet every day of the week but Saturday. He doesn't say Sunday because that goes without saying they would not have met on Sunday. Uh, we sit commonly from nine to one or two afternoon. Ordinarily, there will be present about above three score of their divines, so about 60 or more. Um, these are divided in three committees and one where every man is a member. Um, so everyone is a part of a committee that's working on different drafts, different chapters in draft form that will come to the full assembly in time. No man is excluded who pleases to come to any of the three. Every committee, as the Parliament gives order and right to take any purpose to consideration, takes a portion, and in their afternoon meeting prepares the matters for the assembly, sets down their mind in distinct propositions, and backs their propositions with the texts of Scripture. And the, the theological work that was done in the assembly was all so rooted in the Scriptures and debating over what the Scriptures themselves teach. After the prayer, Mr. Byfield, the scribe, reads the proposition in Scriptures whereupon the assembly debates in a most grave and orderly way. No man is called up to speak, but who stands up of his own accord. He speaks so long as he will without interruption. So no time limit, right? You can just talk for 30 minutes about whatever your point is. If two or three stand up at once, then the divines confusedly calls on his name whom they desire to hear first. <laughs> on whom the loudest and manifest voices calls, he speaks. Uh, no man speaks to any but to the prolocutor, which is the moderator. So they're addressing the moderator, not one another. Um, they speak long and very learnedly. They study the questions well beforehand and prepare their speeches, but withal the men are exceedingly prompt and well-spoken. I do marvel at the very accurate and extemporary replies that many of them usually do make, when upon every preposition by its proposition by itself and on every text of Scripture that is brought to confirm it, every man who will, he said his whole mind, said his whole mind in the replies and the duplies, which I guess are further replies, and triplies are heard, then the most part calls to the question, so they have a vote. Um, Byfield, the scribe, rises from the table and comes to the prolocutor's chair, who from the scribe's book reads the proposition and says, as a many are as an opinion with the question, as well state the position, proposition, let them say I. When I is heard, he says, as many as I think otherwise, say no. And I guess that's where the I thing comes from. Interesting. If the difference of eyes and no's be clear, as it usually is, then the question is ordered by the scribes, and they go on to debate the first scripture alleged for the proof of the proposition. So that just kind of gives you a picture of how this really worked itself out. It was, you know, very orderly debate, very learned debate. All right, that's a good picture. I mean, let's stand and pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness to us. Prepare our hearts now for worship. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.